All right, we're in Exodus chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, kind of rolling through there. When I was in high school, there we go. When I was in high school, there was a song that made it to number one on the charts that was something of a rejuvenated career for an artist that many had thought was done producing popular music. The year was 1993, and the artist was the majestically named Meatloaf. And his song was, I would do anything for love. At least that's the beginning of the song, right? That's the, the initial title of the song, I would do anything for love, which would have been a great title, uh, ready for Valentine's Day and all. But the full title was, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. You guys remember that song, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. And I have to tell you the truth, uh, just to be honest, full confession, I really like that song. Uh, I could have probably sang it word for word back in 1993. I feel pretty confident that I recorded that song when it came on the radio. You guys ever do that? You remember having to do that? You sit by your tape deck waiting for the song to come on so that you can rush to press play and record at the same time. You push those at the same time. There was no Spotify. There was no Apple Music. There was none of that stuff. This is how you made your playlist. You guys have got Spotify and Apple Music now. We had the top nine at nine. That's what we had. The top nine at nine would come on. We'd have our blank cassette tape in there. We'd hit play and record. We'd record our song, and then we'd stop it as soon as it was over. That's how we made our playlists and our mixtapes. And I'm pretty certain that this song probably made it onto that tape for me. But the song that's repeated over and over and over and over in that song, I don't think I even realized just how repetitive that song was until I listened to it again this week. The one that's over is that I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Meatloaf has got, that just feels weird to say that, just refer to him as a person, Meatloaf. Uh, Meatloaf would do anything for love, but he won't do that. He says it dozens of times. The problem is he never really tells us what it is that he won't do for love. He doesn't really tell us what that is. We, we, we're left to guess what, what that is. All we know is that, that Meatloaf had a line that he wouldn't cross for, for love. That he would, he would go so far, but he won't do that. Now we all have that line, don't we? Maybe it's not for love, but maybe it's for something else. We all have our limits. Y'all have seen the annual Christmas card that my family manages to produce and put out, right? You guys have seen the, uh, the, the things that we do. That is taken at Disney World. And yes, I had to walk around Disney wearing that. Uh, and if you've seen some of the other pictures that we've had over the years, that's really not that bad. Um, but what, what you don't know is that there's... Every Christmas where I've had to look at my wife and I've had to say, look, I'll do certain things, but I won't do that. So what I've accepted, you can only imagine what I've said. No, I'm not going that far. The line is back. The line is back this way. In fact, we were just discussing yesterday. We're getting ready to go on a family vacation. She has another costume she wants me to wear. And the costume she wants me to wear actually has me wearing a shirt very much like that one that Meatloaf is wearing. And I said, I'm not doing that. We're going to have to figure out another option here. I'm not going to do that. Enough is enough. I just won't do that. We all have 
our limits. And this morning in Exodus chapter 7, we're going to see how that idea that we all have our limits plays out a little bit in our story. We're going to see Pharaoh stare down Moses, go head to head with God. And we're going to see just where Pharaoh's line is, where he says, enough is enough. No more, Moses. Not going to do that. So we're picking up where we left off. Moses and Aaron have gone into Pharaoh. They've performed their first miracle, turning their staff into a snake, turning uh, and, and seeing the, the uh, magicians come and say, well, we can do that as well. And then the, the, the snake, that the staff that became a snake from Aaron uh, turns and eats the snakes that, that were from Pharaoh's magicians, full of symbolism about the sovereignty and the power of God over Pharaoh. And now we enter into the next phase of the story that we know as the ten plagues. So Exodus chapter 7, verse 14 is where we begin. I'm going to read a pretty good chunk of scripture here from this first plague. Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. When you see him walking out to the water, stand ready to meet him by the bank of the Nile. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a snake. Tell him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to tell you, let my people go, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But so far you have not listened. This is what Yahweh says. Here is how you will know that I am Yahweh. Watch, I will strike the water in the Nile with the staff in my hand, and it will turn to blood. The fish in the Nile will die, the river will stink, and the Egyptians will be unable to drink water from it. So the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch it out over... Stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, canals, ponds, and all their water reservoirs, and they will become blood. They will be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in the wooden and stone containers. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. And In the sight of Pharaoh and his officials, he raised the staff, he struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile has turned to blood. The fish in the Nile died, the river smelled so bad the Egyptians could not drink water from it, and there was blood throughout the land. Of Egypt. We'll stop there for now. The first of what we know of the ten plagues is now unleashed on Egypt. They've tried. They said, Pharaoh, let us do this. We've shown with this first miracle that, that, that Yahweh is bigger than you are, Pharaoh. Just listen to Yahweh and let his people go. But he doesn't, so now the plagues have begun. The word plague is nowhere found here. Really, it's more interpreted as signs and wonders, but plague is an accurate description of what we're, we'll be talking about uh, as we go through this. And it's generally considered that each of the plagues gets a little bit worse, that it kind of steps up in uh, in severity, and I suppose that is probably true, uh, but this first one is no small thing. It's not like we start with the, the JV version and then we move up to the, to the varsity and then the, the, the college level and then the pro level with these things. We're starting pretty high here. This is a pretty severe punishment that, that comes here. This wreaks havoc on the people of Egypt and on their way of life. But what's really going on here? We have to ask some questions if we want to understand truly what the plagues are all about. Because the plagues are not just God's being mean to Egypt. And he's going to show them just how mean he can be. This is not what the plagues are about. The plagues are full of symbolism, full of, of different things. And so we have to ask the question, why is God doing this? Why now? Why not the, or, and why to the Egyptians? If you go back through Genesis and, and so far in Exodus, God hasn't shown himself or, or really dealt with anyone other than his chosen people. 
Since Abraham, who was the first of his chosen people, this account is the first time that that God has chosen to speak to a non-Hebrew person in a way to reveal himself. And there's a few reasons that God is about to do these works amongst the Egyptian people. One is because, if you'll remember all the way back in chapter 1, God has remembered his covenant with Israel. And he's now ready to act. He's ready to, uh, to, to respond. He's heard their cries. He's heard their prayers. He's heard their petitions. And he's ready to respond because he remembers his covenant. We could camp there for a while and, and send you back to chapter 1 if you want to rehearse some of that. But another reason comes from chapter 5, from just a few weeks ago. What I said at the time would become the theme of the book of Exodus and the question that we essentially have to ask every week when we're in this book. I, I, don't, I don't guess I'm going to read this verse every week, but I think I could for the rest of the time that we're in the book of Exodus. It's Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, where Pharaoh responds to Moses and he says, Who is Yahweh that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know anything about Yahweh. And besides, I'm not going to let Israel go. That question, who is Yahweh, I don't know him, who is he, and then specifically, that I should obey him. That is the question that is the driver for the book of Exodus. And these ten plagues are going to be a systematic dismantling of Pharaoh's framework for life. His framework for power and the nature of God. These ten plagues are systematically going to go through this and going to break this down for Pharaoh and and completely destroy what he knows of his spirituality and what he believes to be true of all things that are around him and the gods that he worshipped. And it will be so complete and so thorough that Pharaoh will see no other way but to eventually succumb to this Yahweh. But that's not how Pharaoh begins this journey. He begins very stubborn, very obstinate, and not really listen, ready to listen, listen at all. And if you'll remember in chapter 5, Pharaoh's not worried at all that Israel has a God. And this is important for us to understand. This is not Pharaoh says, I'm God, Yahweh says, I'm God, and those two are going to go after, at each other. That's not how that begins. How it begins is that Pharaoh says, look, I don't know why I should have to listen to Yahweh. But he's not immediately offended by the idea that, that the Jews would have a God named Yahweh. They're not, he's not particularly offended that Israel has its own gods. Remember, everybody had a God. In fact, everybody but Israel had many gods. Now, Israel, Israel was monotheistic, but, but Egypt was definitely not. They had gods that they couldn't even name because they had so many of them. They, they did not... Everybody had multiple gods. For Pharaoh, Yahweh was welcome to go amongst the pantheon of the Egyptian gods. No problem. The issue was not that Israel would have a god. The issue is, why should Pharaoh obey this god? And this is the question that drives this piece of Exodus. Pharaoh's question is full of arrogance and pride An easy one for us to scoff at as we sit here on the other side of the ten plagues, holding our Bibles, singing our songs, sitting in our churches. But carefully studying these ten plagues, we can begin to see and we can begin to know that there's there's a lot that we can actually relate to here. We fool ourselves if we think ourselves to be all that different than Pharaoh. 
We like to think of ourselves as the good side on the story and that Pharaoh is the bad guy in the story, and I suppose that that is true, but Pharaoh's not all that different than us. We like to think ourselves more evolved, more sophisticated, more educated, more enlightened than the Egyptians. We don't have the, the, the multiple gods that we go and worship in the multiple temples. And while we may have come a long way scientifically, industrially, and so many other ways, spiritually, things haven't really changed all that much in the history of the world. Our spiritual culture today looks very much like the culture of Egypt. And we may hide our gods better. They may not be as obvious and explicit by the fact that we, we, don't, we don't stick a, uh, a sign on it that says, come to this temple to worship this God. We hide them in our bank accounts. We hide our gods in our big houses and our creature comforts. But our gods are still surrounding us. We may hide our gods in our families and our spouses and our careers. But our gods are still surrounding us. We may hide our gods and our sexuality and our celebrity and our fame, but our gods are still surrounding us. And no one really has any problem with these gods. In fact, in a lot of Christian circles, the pursuit of those gods is the evidence of God's blessing. We celebrate, i.e., we worship these things. The motto of our culture is, you do you. You do you so long as it doesn't doesn't offend me. But you do you so long as it doesn't bother me or something that I hold sacred. We're not offended by people holding other gods. You do you. And if what you're doing seems to be working for you, I may even borrow from you. I may even take a little bit of what you got. That seems to be working for you. I'll just add that to my collection. If that's looking good for you, that's making you happy. You seem like you're enjoying life. I may borrow a little bit of what you got going on too. If Jesus works for you, good for you. I may borrow a little bit of Jesus too. I'll put, I'll put Jesus in my own little box on, on, on the shelf with all the others. I like his stuff that he says about loving others and not judging others. I kind of think that already anyway. If I can get Jesus to back me up, all the better. So I'll just put him on this shelf next to my my Pinterest quotables board and my, my hashtag blessed Instagram post. He'll fit nicely there. He just fits right in that, that whole little digital world that I've got going on. And I'll put Jesus right there. But just like Pharaoh, the issue at hand isn't the many gods that you worship or that I might even want to throw some some worship towards. That's not the issue at hand. The issue is when we're told that we don't get our box of gods. The, The issue in our culture is not whenever you have your God and I borrow a little bit from that God and this God and that God. That's not the issue. The issue is whenever we're told we can't have all those gods. The issue is when I'm told I don't get my box of gods, I only get one God. I get Yahweh. I get Jesus. And that's it. And I have to worship him wholeheartedly at all times. And there are no other gods that get to challenge him. He has absolute authority over any would-be challengers and over me. And not only do I have to renounce all, other, all these other gods that I trust so much, I, not only do I have to renounce them, I now have to give all of myself over to Yahweh. This is where the problem lies, and this is where our problem lies too. 
This is the line where Pharaoh says, I'll go so far, but I'm not going to do that. I'll bring, I'll bring Yahweh in, that's fine. Yahweh can be amongst our pantheon of gods. Yahweh can be right there, somewhere on that chart. He'll maybe fit somewhere in the middle. That's fine, bring him on in. Seems like he's probably a good guy. Great, I love it. So our culture will say too. We'll put, we'll put Jesus right there amongst our, our gods of career and success. And if we, can, if we can say that Jesus sanctifies those things and blesses those things, even better, then I don't even have to feel even guilty about those at all. The question, the problem is whenever we say, no, 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 Jesus is it, and all these others, the gods of success, the gods of sexuality, the god of family, the god of, of, of marriage, the god of all of these other things, you have to be able to renounce those things and you get Jesus. And Jesus is over all of those things. He's supreme over all of those things. That's where the problem lies. Not that we would get Jesus as one of the gods, but that we would have Jesus be the only God. And that is the center conflict of the first half of the book of Exodus. You know, we've gotten Moses' backstory. We've gotten the rising tension in the plot. And now it's time for the real conflict in our plot. It's time for the action in the story. And God is about to answer the question, who is he that we should obey him? He's going to show that Egypt's gods are no gods at all. And that he's the only one that's worthy of the worship that is given. Egypt believed that their gods existed to serve them. But what God's about to show is that he isn't here to serve the people of Egypt, but that they should be serving him. And so he begins with this miracle of changing the, the water to blood. It starts with the Nile, but it spreads basically to, to every piece of, of water, every type of water that the Egyptians had. This is a really big deal. I don't think we can, kinda, I don't think we can comprehend how big of a deal this is to the Egyptian people. I think we, we, too, we too often put it in the, this is the minor plague category because it was first, but, but you have to understand what it meant that, that all of the Nile and all of their water was going to turn to blood. Just imagine if our waters were, connect, were contaminated here for a week in Jefferson City. You would feel the nuisance of this, you would have to boil your water, you'd have to go through the, the, the different things, but it would be an inconvenience, it would be frustrating, and we kind of think, well, this must be what Egypt was going to. That would have been frustrating, that would have been annoying, that would have been tough. But now just imagine if the water was contaminated, and then when you went to the grocery store to get the bottled water, that was contaminated, and not only that, all the food that was in the grocery store is gone, because you can't grow it now, because you don't have a water supply, and so... There's no grocery store to go get food. There's nowhere to go get water. There's no water that you can drink anywhere. If, if you can picture that scenario, you get a little bit closer to the frustration and the annoyance that Egypt would have felt when this happened. You see, the Nile was more than just a river that ran through town. The Nile is what gave the people of Egypt life. It's what gave them power. It's what gave them wealth. It's what gave them so many things. The, the water that the Nile gave was their source for so much of what made them great. And as you might guess, if it's the source of so many things that make them great, then a, a culture like, like uh, Egypt's that was so full of different gods that it would have 
Um, it would have a lot of different gods tied to it, and it certainly did. There were actually a few that were tied to the, to the river and, and the things that the river gave. But the most central and probably the most well-known is a god named Happy. So if you can put this god up there, Happy. This was the Egyptian god uh, that was over the Nile and was thought, to, was thought to bring prosperity to the people of Egypt because it brought fertility and vitality to the river. If the river were, were to be a place of, of prosperity, then happy needed to be exalted and needed to be pleased. It shouldn't be lost on us that this god's name is happy. Sounds a lot like how we define happiness too. If we have a lot of things and if we have a lot of, if the economy's good, we have happy. Works out really well the way this translates for us. It's a very clear picture for us. The way our culture defines happiness is very much the way the goddess happy would have been. And this is where we begin to see what is really happening in these plagues. It's not just that bad things are happening to Egypt. It's that things get bad for a reason, full of symbolism. God is showing Pharaoh and the Egyptian people that their puny, happy God can be taken down by Aaron simply putting his staff in the water. That's all it takes. And the power of Yahweh is going to be on display in such a way that shows that wherever they place Yahweh in their rankings of their gods, if Yahweh is going to be amongst the, the gods of Egypt, he's at least got to be above happy because he's more powerful than happy. And that's a big deal because happy was pretty high up there on the list in the hierarchy. We must also see that these, this first plague brings things back full circle for Pharaoh. If you'll remember, Pharaoh had tried to turn the Nile into blood before by having all the Hebrew boys murdered when they were born by throwing them into the Nile. And now God is going to get Pharaoh's attention by saying, you cannot turn the, you are not going to ultimately succeed in turning the Nile into blood, but I will. You can consider yourself to be a God that you can order these things to be done and you can consider your own power to be great, but I want to show you what it really looks like whenever I assert my control over the situation. And he does, and everything turns to blood, and everything dies. So what does Pharaoh do in the face of such clear domination of Egypt's powerful God, happy? This is Exodus chapter 7, verse 22. He calls his magicians, again. But the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their occult practices. So Pharaoh's heart hardened and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned around, went into his palace, and didn't even take this to heart. All the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink because they could not drink the water from the river. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. So he sees the magicians replicate this on a smaller scale. He walks away convinced that it really wasn't all that bad. That's basically Pharaoh's reaction. After all, if the magicians can pull it off, if the magicians can do something that looks similar, then maybe Yahweh's not all that powerful anyway. Maybe this is just a sleight of hand from Moses and Aaron. And then after all, the Egyptians found a way around the plague. They dug wells. It says that they dug around the, the river. They dug wells and they were able to find some water. So crisis averted. Plague one seems to resolve itself with no clear winner. 
So let's look at plague two. These are the only two we're going to look at this morning, but let's look at plague two. Exodus chapter eight, verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, go, in, go into Pharaoh and tell him, this is what Yahweh says, let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go, then I will plague your territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs. They will come up and go into your palace, into your bedroom, and on your bed, into the houses of your officials and your people, into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs will come up on you, your people, and all your officials. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, canals, and ponds, and cause the frogs to come up onto the land of Egypt. When Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same thing by their occult practices and brought frogs up onto the land of Egypt. So here we move to the second of the plagues. The second plague, God chooses frogs of all things to curse the people of Egypt. Not lions, not tigers, not bears, not snakes, not scorpions, frogs. It's an odd choice. And my wife is particularly afraid of, cro- of frogs, so she's like, yeah, I get it. That's pretty terrifying. That would be probably my worst nightmare. I don't know if you're afraid of frogs or not. I'm not particularly afraid of frogs. I just think that would be gross to have frogs everywhere. Everywhere. I mean, it's pretty thorough. Like, it's going to be jumping out of your cereal bowl. It's going to be jumping out of your oatmeal. It's going to be jumping out of your birthday cake. You're going to have frogs everywhere. That's pretty much what they say here. You're going to be taking a bath, and you're going to have a frog on your face. And you're going to, like, it's everywhere. There's frogs everywhere. Not particularly dangerous. It's a little weird, kind of. So what's going on here? Why does God choose frogs? Why didn't he choose something scary? Why is it not something that can kill the Egyptians? Why is it not the cobras came up out of the... Like, that That would make sense to me. That's not what he does. He chooses frogs. And the reason why is because this relates to the Egyptian people well. This time, it's the goddess Hecate. If you can put that picture up on there. That's a, a picture of the goddess Hecate. You can see this is a... Uh, it's supposed to be a woman with a frog's head. Um, this looks like something that I think would be in, like, Guardians of the Galaxy or something would be in like, like something that from a Marvel comic book or something. It looks kind of crazy, but this is what they, they had. This was a woman with a frog's head and was thought to be good luck and the goddess of fertility. Women would wear amulets around their neck that looked like frogs because that was supposed to help them with fertility. And God was showing them that their life did not come from the river and their life did not come from a frog woman either. You think frogs are powerful? You think frogs do something great to make you vital and to make you fertile? Well, good luck. Because look, I'm sovereign over them too. Let's see them come up out of the water. So how does Pharaoh handle this plague? It's a little different this time. Evidence maybe that Pharaoh will listen after all. Now we know that there's ten plagues. We know that's where this is going. But maybe it could have stopped after two. And for a brief second, it looked like it might. Exodus chapter 8, verse 8. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Ask Yahweh to remove the frogs from me and my people, and then I will let... I will let the people go, and they can sacrifice to Yahweh. I think it's interesting. He recognizes the power that Yahweh has. He's not calling his magicians to say, all right, magicians, you made the frogs do the thing too. Can you call them back? 
he realizes his magicians can't do all the same things that are going on here. They can't call the frogs back. They can't put an end to this plague. He realizes the power that God has. Moses said to Pharaoh, You make the choice rather than me. When should I ask on behalf of you, your officials and your people, that the frogs be taken away from you and your houses and remain only in the Nile? Tomorrow, he answered. Moses replied, As you have said, so you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. The frogs will go away from you, your houses, your officials, and your people. The frogs will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord for help concerning the frogs that he had brought to Pharaoh. Brought against Pharaoh. The Lord did as Moses had said. The frogs in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields died. They piled them in countless heaps, and they were terrible, and there was a terrible odor in the land. I can imagine. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Again, we see what ultimately becomes the pattern that is going to develop. Pharaoh's asking questions, the magicians show up. Pharaoh then stiffens. This time he looks like he's ready to give in, though. Until just like last time, when the Egyptians dug wells, there was relief. Things go back to normal now. The frogs die. And Pharaoh backs off what looks like it could have been a change of heart. And this is a pattern that we know well from Pharaoh, but this is a pattern that we don't need Pharaoh to show us. Because we know it all too well, too. We run to Jesus during a crisis. We run to God when the need is felt. And then once the urgency is gone, once the immediate need is gone, once the need has passed, how quickly we forget. We desperately need God. We desperately cry out to God. And then when He relents, we forget. Church, we are a forgetful people. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. But if you read through the Old Testament, a huge chunk of what God says to Israel in the Old Testament is just remember. Far, far more than God says obey, He says remember. It's not even close. We think that that the God of the Old Testament is one that says, obey, 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 here's the law, here's the law, here's the law. But far more than he says, here's the law, he says, here's what I've done, don't forget. Remember. And the idea is that the remembrance of God is what should spur our obedience. This is how the gospel works. It's not obey so that you may be accepted and then God will be merciful. The gospel is that God shows us mercy. And then in response to that, we constantly remind ourselves of the mercy that we've seen and that we've received, and that should produce and spur on obedience. Mercy first, obedience follows. That's the pattern in the Old Testament and in the New. And this is why we are constantly told to remember. The problem is we're really, really bad at that. Really bad. We are prisoners to the moment. Our memories are as long as the next crisis we face. How often I see, especially as a pastor, someone run to Christ in crisis. 
Run to Jesus. Run to God. Come to the church because everything is falling apart and they can't figure out what's next. They feel the freedom in confession. They feel the, the hope of community. They feel the, 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 the joy that comes with repentance. And then they forget what they have just seen in the mirror and the mercies they have received. The writer of James says it like this. James chapter 1, verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and then he goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. Here Pharaoh is that man who looks in the mirror. He hears the word from Moses, the warning from God through Moses. He sees his need. He sees his inability. He has to call Moses and say, get Yahweh to stop this because I can't. He recognizes his need. He hears the word. He knows where he's at. He knows he is completely incapable of fixing any of this. So he pleads for mercy as his inabilities become clear to him in this mirror. But as soon as the plague relents, he walks away from the mirror and it's it's as if he had never seen any of it in the first place. Listen, one of the most gracious things God can do for us is to show us just how weak, ineffective, and insufficient we are and our gods are. One of the most severe judgments that God can pass on us is to let us believe that we are strong, we are powerful, and we are in control. To let us believe that our bank accounts can protect us. To let us believe that our workout program, our diet supplements, and our essential oils will keep us alive forever. Often the most severe judgment God can give us is to never show us just how weak and how inept our gods truly are. He just lets us believe that our spouse will be our source of happiness. He just lets us believe that raising our kids right can atone for all the the bad that we've done before then. That can be the most severe judgment that God can place on us. Sometimes God's judgment looks like a plague. It feels like a plague. Sometimes God's judgment just looks like Tuesday. And it's just another day. And you don't realize just how far you've walked away from him. Sometimes God's mercy looks like a bonus check. But sometimes God's mercy looks like that very same plague you thought was a curse. In his kindness, God destroys our idols. In his mercy, he rips the blinders off of us. And you know how it is when you've been in darkness for a long time? You know that first crack of dawn in the morning and you flip on the light switch and you can't see anything and it's bright and you're stumbling all over the place and you can't decide, do I want to just turn this light off or do I want to let my eyes adjust because it's bright and it it hurts? So it is with us. It might be bright, it might hurt our eyes, it might not be what we want to see, but it's a sweet mercy to know that those things that we put so much faith in aren't worthy of that faith at all. Jesus says it this way in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and then forfeit his soul? It's God's graciousness that he doesn't give us the world. It's God's graciousness that he keeps us from making that trade. Egypt's idols existed because they believed that they gave life, that they sustained life, 
that they produced life. Our idols are exactly the same. We believe that our bank accounts bring us happiness. We believe that these other things that we love so much, our creature comforts, our security, all of these different things, we believe that they bring us to a place of joy that gives us life and it sustains us. But it's all an illusion. God was gracious to reveal to Egypt how finite, how temporary, and how insufficient their idols were. I don't know if you think of that whenever you see the plagues or whenever you read about the plagues. Maybe you just think about the wrath and the anger of God. But do you see the grace and the mercy of God in the same breath, and the same action? He revealed how temporary and how sufficient their idols were, and so it is with us. So here in Exodus... We're getting one stream of the answer to the question, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? The answer is resounding. Because your gods are no gods at all. They are gods of happiness, gods of economic success, gods of family and sexuality. And they're all made with your own hands trying to meet your own very temporary needs. They have no power to save you. They have no power to sustain you. They have no power to make you whole. They aren't worthy. But God, but Yahweh, He is worthy. He is worthy because He is sovereign. He is worthy because He is powerful. And He is able to do things that your gods simply cannot. That's how God reveals Himself here in Exodus. But then when you go to the New Testament, and Jesus gives us an even fuller picture of who this God is. Who is Yahweh that I should obey Him? Friend, he is the one who gives life, and he gives it in a way that is overflowing and in abundance. He's a God whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's the God whose kingdom has no end. He's a God who can atone for your sin and who can save you from your tiny, weak, insufficient gods. So why worship this God? Because he's the only one that's worthy of it. He's the only one in which you can find meaning He's the only one in which you can find a flourishing that lasts longer than a paycheck, a purpose that sustains longer than the cause of the moment, and he's the only one that can give you what your soul desperately needs. He's the only one that can give you acceptance, grace, and hope. And he is not here to serve you. He is here to be worshipped. And he graciously makes himself known. Sometimes in a whisper, sometimes in a fire, sometimes in a plague, and sometimes in the mercy of his son. But that is the God we worship. And unlike all of our other gods, it's easy to say that the the goddess Happy and the goddess Hecate are not worthy of worship because they are just ridiculous looking pictures on the side of a stone wall somewhere. It's easy to say that those gods aren't worthy of worship. It's a lot harder whenever we realize the worship and the worth that we ascribe to our gods. But the only God that's worthy of worship is Yahweh. And he's the only God that graciously reveals himself and offers to save us when we have become his enemy. That's the God we serve. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God of Christianity. And that's the God that you can come to today if you will repent of your idols, if you will lay them down, and if you will say, I want to follow you. This is Yahweh. And he is the only one worthy. Will you pray with me?
Father, we confess we have more idols than we even know. We worship in temples of banks and television shows and celebrity and fame and social media. But our worship is just as devout as the Egyptians' worship of Hecate and Happy. Father, help us to repent. Father, don't harden our hearts today, but soften our hearts toward you that we would repent of those gods that we have, whatever they may be. Father, rip off the blinders. May we see our gods. May we see how insufficient and weak they are. And may we see how great and gracious you are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.